You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. So today's guest on the podcast is Lieutenant General James Rainey. General Rainey currently serves as the commander of the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The topic of today's podcast is the 2004 Second Battle of Fallujah, also called Operation Phantom Fury. During the operation, General Rainey was Lieutenant Colonel Rainey, commander of the 2nd Battalion, 7th Cavalry Regiment, or Task Force 27, within the 1st Cavalry Division. For the duration of the operation, Task Force 27 was placed under the operational control of the Marines' 1st Regimental Combat Team. Sir, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, John. I appreciate you having me. It's a great honor. And sir, if you don't mind, I I thought I'd start by giving our listeners a quick background to Operation Phantom Fury, just to provide some context to the battle so that we can jump right into your firsthand experiences. So if any listener doesn't know, on March 31st of 2004, four American security contractors were ambushed in Fallujah, brutally beaten, killed, and burned. Two of the contractors' bodies were hung from the ramparts of a bridge on the outskirts of the city. Images of the hanging body were televised and broadcast worldwide. In response... On April 5th of 2004, the U.S. Marines were ordered to launch Operation Vigilant Resolve, which was an assault to deny insurgent sanctuary in Fallujah and to arrest those responsible for the contract killing. The operation was executed by Regimental Combat Team 1, mainly consisting of two battalions, a tank company, an assault amphibian company, and an artillery battalion. And although the Marines ordered another two additional infantry battalions into Fallujah, they struggled with isolating and attacking their objectives based on the enemy, estimated about 2,000 insurgents, The complexity of the fighting in a densely populated large city. At the time, Fallujah had an estimated population of 250 to 300,000 residents, a lack of armor capability, and a complete loss of their Iraqi paramilitary support. On April 9th of 2004, four days after the start of the mission, offensive operations in Fallujah were suspended. The mission was halted due to pressure from the Iraqi Governing Council and the Coalition Provisional Authority, in part due to international criticism of the mission sparked by footage of what was dubbed as excessive force. On April 28th of 2004, the Iraqi military unit called the Fallujah Brigade was formed and started to assume control of Fallujah as all American forces pulled out and withdrew to the outskirts of the city on April 30th. Marines remained in a cordon around the city, mostly in checkpoints. Meanwhile, in Iraq, in April of 2004, there was also a political battle between the new Iraqi government and the Shia leader, Muqtada al-Sadr, with a loyal paramilitary force called the Mahdi Army, who eventually took to the streets and seized government train in cities such as the Sadr city section of Baghdad, Al-Qut, Karbala, and Najaf. While there were successful operations to regain control of those areas in April and May, in cities like Najaf, the Mahdi Army never really left, and in August, operations were launched to defeat non-compliant forces and neutralize destabilizing influences in the Najaf province. I believe, sir, that this is where you and the 2-7 CAV honed many of your urban warfare TTPs to clear terrain and defeat enemy forces, but we'll get to that. And on August 27th, Muqtada al-Sadr brokered a truce with the Iraqi government. Meanwhile, despite national negotiations with civilian leaders in Fallujah and the activities of the Fallujah Brigade, the city arguably became an insurgent safe haven for attacks not only around the city, but in the country. Violence in and around Fallujah continued to increase across the summer. There were downings of U.S. helicopters and many other attacks. In September of 2004, U.S. and Coalition Military Command authorized planning of a final assault on Fallujah to eradicate the extremist insurgent nest. And in late October 2004, the 1st Marine Division started marshalling forces and reinforcements for what would be identified as Operation Phantom Fury. The two main units for the mission were Regimental Combat Team 1 and 7. 
While there were operations around and even a few into Fallujah between the two battles, the enemy basically had from the, the end of April to the beginning of November, roughly six months to prepare their defense to include receiving an influx of foreign fighters and stockpiling of weapons. Now, sir, I know that's a, a very large paintbrush to a deep realm of study of two major battles, but is that mostly an, an accurate pre-battle background? And would there be anything you'd add? Yeah. Hey, thanks, John. No, that's, I mean, it's a pretty concise rundown there. A couple things. I was not involved in the Fallujah one or the April fight. I don't know that I would say the Marines struggled in any way. I think it was largely a political Iraqi government pressure to call off that attack. A lot of people have written about it, but you know, my sense was that it was politics, not the fight. But that's important because that was in the background as you get to Fallujah 2 and the pace and the sense of urgency and the tempo that Marine Corps senior leaders set in Fallujah 2, I think was informed or influenced by that experience of lack of political will on behalf of the Iraqi government in Fallujah 1. So, I mean, it's it's interrelated. The comment about Najaf, yeah, we got some reps, you know, urban fighting in Najaf, which was valuable. We were pretty well trained, you know, the first cab and then our train up, General Corelli and, and my commander, General Murray, or Colonel Murray then, now General Murray, made the fighting. We knew we were going to fight in the city, right? We we're going to Baghdad. So we were pretty well trained. I think 1st Brigade of the 1st Cav got in a, a fight in Sadr City almost immediately upon our arrival there and acquitted themselves incredibly well, as you know, General Abrams and General Valesky and, and their teams. So we were pretty well trained. You, you know, you can always get better. What was really useful by fighting with the Marines, although it was 24th Mew, not the one RCT that we ended up fighting with. But I learned a ton and my staff learned a ton about fighting in a joint force, right? So interoperability, how to leverage fires, how intel systems work, how commanders talk to each other on the battlefield. So that rep we had down in Najaf was extremely useful in that context as we moved out and got attached for, for the second battle of Fallujah. So when did you and your battalion get notified about the Fallujah operation? Um, I want to say very early November. It's been a while, but about the 3rd of November, I got a call from, now I was, you know, two sevens part of Gray Wolf, 3rd Brigade, 1st Cap. We were attached to the 39th IBCT, so we're up at Taji and had gone down to Najaf, fought, come back, and then got another warning order to be prepared to move by ground from Taji to Fallujah and link up with the Marines. So when did you get to the Fallujah area, sir? Uh, I want to say, as far as establishing contact, one of the TTPs, based on how big a fight I knew this was going to be, the first thing I did was uh, put my S3, Tim Karcher, guy named Mike Irwin, who was my two, and Coley Tyler, who I think you've talked to before. So Intel Fires and my three, got them on a helicopter to get out there and establish planning connectivity, start running sit reps, and, and then we prepared to move and moved. And, you know, it was not a... Uh, Cross-attaching formations is always sporty, but doing it across services, you know. So we had a pretty significant move down to Baghdad, around Baghdad, and then west out to Fallujah. And there's not a lot of stealth in moving a mechanized task force <laughs> around. So I think the Marines masterfully acknowledged that and incorporated that into their information campaign, you know. So they messaged the seriousness of setting the cordon 
The 2nd Brigade of 1st Cav also was involved in Fallujah too, and they moved out and established a cordon. So I was cross-talking with 2nd Brigade and then getting attached to 1st RCT. And all that took about four days worth of move until we got settled in in our assembly area north of the city. And I know you mentioned it, but at the time, were you and your staff team fully aware of what had happened in Fallujah 1? Was that part of kind of the warning order and the prep? Um, I mean, obviously, I was paying attention to everything that was going on every day in the theater, but it was out of my area of operations, but in my area of interest, because you and I'm sure everybody listening knows that the whole point of Fallujah was it was a support zone for the enemy, and that's how they maneuvered into Baghdad. That's how they maneuvered up into Taji, where I was. So we were paying attention to it and knew that there had been a fight. Everybody kind of felt like there was another one. From the end of Fallujah 1, there was a sense, I think, of everybody that there was going to be a reckoning coming that wasn't going to end that way. So I watched it a little bit, but I had a tough fight of my own going on up in Taji every day. So once we got the warning order, then we rapidly got spun up on everything that had happened out in Fallujah. And I know that the enemy situation between Fallujah 1 and Fallujah 2 is vastly different. What was the enemy situation by November of 2004 within Fallujah? Yeah. So, you know, there was never real, you know, it's like any good movement to contact. I'd say we had somewhere between a 50 and 70% read on the enemy. We weren't real sure about the total number of defenders. What was interesting is because of the effective messaging, IO campaign, pressure that the Marines had put on Fallujah, coupled with some pretty effective humanitarian work they did, civil affairs type stuff. The general feeling was that the city was largely devoid of civilian population. Unlike when I fought in Najaf or when we were in Baghdad, where it was an intermix of friendly enemy. And I mean, you've been over there, the neutral people that look like friendly, but our enemy, you know, that's always the most complicated thing when you're fighting in and around people. But it was largely, the feel was that the cordon was set the innocent people had moved out of the city and that the people remaining that were going to fight were there to fight to the death. It was very much uh, had a last stand type feel to it. And I know it's been a while, but for Operation Phantom Fury, what was the overall mission of the battle? Um, Well, I think the purpose of it was to deny or eliminate Fallujah as a safe haven for the enemy. You know, the Sunni insurgency had sanctuary and had the ability to plan attacks, have meetings, see to their operations. It was numerous V-bed factories, IED factories in the city. So the purpose was to take away that sanctuary and that freedom of action from the really the majority of the, the Sunni insurgency. The specific mission my part of it, well, first regimental combat team's part was enemy oriented, right? So it was destroy enemy forces in the initial phase and then to be followed by a detailed clearance, to be followed by a transition to setting the conditions for good governance, helping restore essential services, take care of any people aspect, but initially enemy oriented. Yes, sir. And I think when I talk major combat operations or large-scale combat operations, I often have to give my audience that reference of, you, know, you can have an enemy-based operation, which is kill and destroy all enemy forces, or you can have a terrain-based, which is more of a, a tactic, seize, that's more focused on the terrain than it is the actual searching, movement to contact, finding enemy forces. 
Yeah. And you can also have, and you know, you can also be friendly oriented, right? So, you know, the supporting effort whose purpose is to protect the flank of a, a main effort formation. So yeah, but not urban warfare specific, but I always tell people, you know, like one of the most fundamental things you got to understand to fight well is what's your purpose, you know, because if your enemy terrain or friendly oriented makes a big difference, you know. Yes, sir. So what was the main plan of attack for the entire element? I know it made it was made up of much more forces than just Regimental Combat Team 1, but what was the general plan of attack on the city? Yeah, so um, the uh, cordon set shaping with fires and information, and the attack was the 1st Marine Division, two Regimental Combat Teams attacking north to south. So initially the first rct was the initial main effort was going to take about 25 percent of the city and then seventh rct is the follow-on main effort would then clear north to south and then east to west so about three quarters of the city that's like always not exactly what happened but that was initial plan and each one of the rcts had a an army basically an armored brigade combat team as the lead element Combined Arms Battalion, what we would call a Combined Arms Battalion now. So 2-2 Infantry was with 7RCT, 2-7 Cav, our formation was with 1st RCT, and we were basically a mech-heavy, you know, infantry-heavy mechanized task force. Two mech in a tank. And you were the main effort battalion of the main effort brigade or RCT? Yeah, 1st RCT was the 1st Marine Division main effort for the initial part of the attack. 2-7 Cav was the 1st RCT main effort. So, yes. Yes, sir. And what was your mission, sir? Um, This is a good question. So, uh, and this is one of the big things I learned. So, obviously, more mechanized experience in my formation. But as I joined 1RCT, Colonel Mike Shupp was a commander. His initial plan had us on a very narrow, the task was to penetrate, you know, the purpose was to disrupt the enemy's defense so that the Marines who had to do the the house-to-house clearing part, uh, the two infantry Marine battalions. So it was basically to dislocate the enemy's defense, put them in motion so that they couldn't fight a deliberate delaying defense against the Marines who had to clear enemy forces in zone. And I thought there was too narrow. So I went back through the back brief process and, and asked for a wider zone of attack so I could get more of my combat power into the fight. Because as you know, tanks and Bradleys take up space, right? And the 25% of the city we were fighting in was kind of Byzantine type kind of, it wasn't, you know, like some parts of of Fallujah where it's more linear city block type kind of thing. But it was a good iterative process because what his concern was, he no kidding wanted us to do a penetration and thought that I was asking to buy off more terrain that would slow me down. So we had a great professional iteration through the planning process. And because he's a commander and was a great commander, you know, he settled on giving me a little bit extra space, but not all the, not the second major avenue of approach. I wanted another big road. And in hindsight, I mean, that was a great decision by him because by focusing us on a, a more narrow front, it resulted in the very deep, rapid penetration that basically dislocated the enemy's whole defense, put them in motion, and kind of turned the initiative into the, the Marine 3-1 and 3-3, the two Marine battalions. But it's, it's a joint fight, right? So, you know, you enter into a joint or coalition or partner thing, understanding that everybody's bringing a unique capability, strengths and weaknesses, and talking about that and understanding those formations. 
but then the centrality of the commander who owns the risk and owns the, the mission responsibility, making decisions and everybody, everybody moving out within that intent. It was textbook example of how I think commander to commander dialogue, followed by decision making, followed by execution within intent. It was as enjoyable as a fight can be. Yes, sir. I think I even saw in reading about the planning process for this, when you sent forward your S3 and I think in the conversation from the start, like, okay, just so you know what we'll do to the terrain when you put a heavy mechanized force into some dense urban terrain, just so everybody knows, that's a very destructive, great capability, but that's a destructive fight. Yeah. Capability brief, you know, understanding each other's capabilities. Now that, you know, the Marines had M1 tanks. I mean, they had, they had tanks. They know what tanks do. The difference is fighting armor, you know, the way the army fights tank, you know, it's basically a company of tanks. Vice the tank is a direct supporting force to the infantry. So there was some of that different types of munitions we were bringing, but it was also, you know, it was two directional, right? So one thing the Marines now and then uh, have a little bit of an advantage because they're a, they're joint by nature, ground, air, integration. They had a significantly more, with the exception of Army aviation, attack aviation, their ability and experience and TTPs for employing joint fires exceeded my capabilities significantly. So there was a lot of us learning and understanding how to get our targets prosecuted when you got a, a joint stack, you know, unlimited access, but it all came down to whether your joint fires guy could have the right radios, the right procedures to leverage those fires. So there was a lot of back and forth. And when I think about the second battle of Fallujah, to me, it was the textbook bringing together of the joint force, you know, what right looks like. We all go to school and you, know, you see the line of block charts. We all inherently know that we don't fight alone. We fight as part of a joint force. But in my career, the one time I've seen that come together the most effectively was in that fight. There was Air Force Air, Navy, Marine Air, soft snipers on the ground, soft fires. I mean, it was just an example of when the United States military comes together, puts all the pieces together as a joint force. It's incredibly powerful. Yes, sir. I know you said a tank company and two brag companies. What overall does that consist of? So a tank company, 14 M1, you know, SEP tanks, most current modern tanks we had at the time. We were fully modernized, you know, the first cab. So we had 120 millimeter mortars. I had about 30 Bradleys. So six platoons, six Bradley platoons. We were in pretty good shape with rifle squads. We had two rifle squads per platoon. We had taken some casualties. We were executing leave and everything else. So we're probably about 90% strength. And I know that once you got your mission and you started doing your own mission analysis, you requested a few additional assets. What were those? Yeah. So the first cab, who was my chain of command, you know, my brigade commander, General Murray and the CG, General Corelli, everybody basically said, whatever you need, let us know and you can have it. One thing that's interesting is I knew the rules of engagement and law of, law of armed conflict were going to come to bear in the fight. And in the army, battalions do not organically have a lawyer. So I asked for an operational law lawyer and got that. I asked for another company. The division didn't have it, but I did get permission to bring most of the National Guard company, the 162nd from uh, Oregon that was with me in Fallujah. I was able to bring a a large platoon of them forward. And then uh, I didn't have JTACs with me. That's a precious, there's not enough for everybody. So I didn't have them when I was up in Fallujah, but I received them from the first cab and well, the Air Force to the first cab to me. So those were the three big ones. 
Yes, sir. That makes makes a lot of sense to me. Now, sir, and if you mind, if we could get into the kind of the nitty gritty of fighting a tank and mechanized element into a penetration like this. And I was actually surprised reading through it. It wasn't you know what I had seen more recently in different recommendations for use, but it makes 100% to me. But I didn't know if you could talk through kind of your scheme of maneuver and how you position the forces along those main avenues approach to do that penetration. Yeah. Let me start a little bigger. So there's a real interesting paradox when you talk, and I know you study this, and I, I think you're one of the leading guys out there that are thinking and talking about urban warfare. So on one hand, urbanization, you know, big cities, people, you know, if you look at the world, right, and cities have a tendency over history to pop up like in important places, right? So they end up at big road intersections or lines of communications, they end up in around ports, things like that. And our enemy, you know, I don't care who you're talking about, you know, anybody we fight is going to try and hide and mix into urban populations or into populations which have a tendency to be in urban areas. You know, nobody wants to get out in the open plains and get in front of the United States military. So that all argues for the probability of us fighting in the urban area. On the other hand, it is something that we should do only as an absolute last resort because of the level of violence. You know, when we enter into a close fight in an urban area, we cede a lot of our capabilities, right? You know, we give up our ability to sense deep. We limit our ability to, to mass fires at speed and scale, you know, because of collateral damage in civilians and things like that. So there's a lot of reasons why you don't want to fight. Another one is the correlation of forces and means is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know. So I think the doctrinal 10 to 1, you know, advantage to fight in an urban area is conservative at best. I mean, it's even higher than that. But also in our doctrine, as you know, that anything you clear in an urban area, you got to be able to secure, right? So if you clear it, then you secure it, or you're going to end up clearing it. You don't want the enemy coming in behind you, popping up behind you, um, not to get too far down in the tactical stuff, but but we saw all that in Fallujah. The, my point is, if you look at the COFUMs and the requirement to secure everything you clear, I don't care how big your military is or how big a formation is, if you look at some of the urban areas that are out there in the world, it's not feasible, right? You're going to run out of combat power before you, you could clear and secure some of the larger urban areas. So I think what you're going to see in the future is kind of in between that. I think we have to be able to fight in an urban area temporally for specific purpose. So for example, if there's a large urban area that's on a line of communication that we need to resupply, I think it's a reasonable expectation that, that a U.S. formation you know, coalition and partners will get asked to clear a line of communication to move logistics through it. That's different than the requirement of clearing and holding a gigantic urban area. Another example would be uh, the ability to conduct a raid into an urban area for a specific purpose, but a raid, right? Go in, accomplish your purpose and come out. So I think saying you're not going to fight in an urban area, I think is probably not realistic. But on the other hand, this idea that anybody would build, man, train and equip a ground force solely for the purpose of getting consumed in a giant urban area, I don't think that's part of the future either. Does that make sense? 
100% certain. And I usually tell people, especially when people try to do correlation between forces and size of city and population size, I usually say, well, tell me what the mission is. Yeah, if the mission is to go in and clear every structure in a mega city or large urban area, yeah, that's not feasible. But US military, there's plenty of scenarios I can think of. Everything from, like you said, limited objective, stop rockets from coming out of a certain area within a much bigger urban area, defense, plenty of scenarios. And our doctrine does cover this and we have some great stuff, but we have to be ready for this very difficult fighting. Yeah. And I think our modernization efforts in the army are very well informed by what we think the future fight's going to be. I think we're making significant progress. So the idea of unmanned sensor robotics, making contact other than with your face, right? We don't want to make contact with the enemy, with humans, our great men and women anymore. So I, I think those things are going to increase our capability. Those technologies will, will help if we do find ourselves for limited purpose fighting in an urban area. But none of that existed 16 years ago. It was a pretty much uh, dug in, booby trapped, mobile. You know, the enemy in Fallujah, like I said earlier, was largely committed. They were there to fight to the death. Some of them eventually ended up surrendering and running away. But initially, everybody that wasn't into the fight had left. They had significant amount of time to prepare their defenses. Every house was booby trapped, uh, spider holes. You go through a breach, there'd be a machine gun bunker you know, built inside the room, you go into the first floor and there were, you know, spider holes in three floors and you get a grenade dropped it down on you. You know, I said booby traps, but you know, you kick in the door and the whole building would blow up. So it was tough, nasty fight. Yes, sir. And I think the thing that I found interesting about the use of mechanized infantry in the tanks in this fight was I'm not saying reminiscent of the drive to Baghdad, but as I kind of go through, like, let's say the steps of an offensive operation about your breach, just seize, seize a foothold, that's not what you were doing. You were penetrating deep into the urban terrain, not clearing house by house. And most of the time, I think your dismounts were not dismounting unless necessary. And the tanks were in the lead, which I found, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. But if I look at different people executing an offensive operation today, they may put infantry in the front protecting the tanks versus what you were doing in this operation. Yeah. And the Marines, I mean, they had a great plan. I mean, I, I can't overstate the fact. I mean, it was a well-rehearsed, well-thought-out, integrated joint fight. And, you know, 3-1 and 3-3, the two large you know infantry battalions, I mean, they cleared in zone, basically. They cleared buildings. They destroyed the enemy. So if you take a mech force, right, whose strength is tanks, Bradleys, right, you know, mobility, protection, and firepower, why would you take that and then dismount those couple squads and clear two floors of a building and you're out of combat power, right? Vice, you got the Marine forces, large infantry squads, very good with mortars, and they're optimized for close-in fighting. So I think the reason the plan was so successful is exactly what you said. So our job was to penetrate. We penetrated rapidly all the way to the middle of the city in the first period of darkness, leading with tanks because that's where all the firepower, survivability, and, and the speed that I had in my formation while one of our infantry battalions attacked through a more restricted piece of terrain, not to clear buildings. If the enemy wanted to hide, we bypassed them. If they wanted to fight, we killed them. But we were oriented on a place called Jolon Park, which was, there was a big giant, it's kind of creepy. There's this big giant Ferris wheel, right? So the read from the Intel guys was the enemy didn't know where we were coming from. They were going to defend us all around the city. Once they figured out what the attack was, they were going to fall back to that park and defend there. So 
Alpha 27 attacked on about four or five roads right at that park and got there, destroyed the enemy force that was there and was there before the enemy could fall back. At the same time, Charlie 3-8, our tank company, attacked right down the main road, destroying, you know, the enemy came out to fight and was destroyed. And next thing you know, by the next morning, the enemy's got a large mechanized formation commanding, you know, the center of the city, all four directions with fires, you know, controlling the roads with fires. They got a mechanized infantry company in what I I believe was, was their decisive point. They were going to fall back and now dealing with multi, and the same thing was happening over on 7th RCT side. And they've got multiple small units of very lethal and well-trained Marines pressing them in multiple directions. So basically it was a dislocation of the enemy attack. What I learned from it, and we kind of came across this when we were down in Najaf, is if you move somewhere, if you can penetrate an urban area, get somewhere you can defend, the enemy has to come to you, right? And that's what you want. You want the enemy moving to you versus you having to root them out of these you know, well-prepared defensive positions. And I think that's what I'm learning more I study these battles, your battle in Najaf, this one, the drive to Baghdad with General Perkins conducting a deep penetration and getting there and holding terrain within the enemy zone. It does start to shape my own thinking about the successful tactics of an operation like this. But you you got to have the capability. And this is where I've seen in more recent battles where you, they just don't have that mobile protective firepower. So they're doing more of a you know start on the exterior penetrate and then start clearing operation rather than get inside and seize and taking away what the enemy values, which is that train. Yeah. I, I don't know which specific ones you're referring to, but it's important now we're talking about a joint force, a joint force, right? So you got fires, you got good intel and, and you can do that. There's risk with penetration type tactics in an urban area. Cause if you get cut off, right, then you got some serious problems. So wherever you go, you got to hold at least a, enough of a line of communication to resupply yourself and evacuate casualties and things like that. So you know, we penetrated the city and held the road that we used to do it. So the role of the infantry, so in, in a mechanized formation, and you, you know this, but so you got tanks, right? Shock, speed, firepower, great protection. You've got mechanized infantry. So you got vehicles that basically exist to position rifle squads. And then you got rifle squads. So unlike a light infantry formation or, you know, the Marines we were fighting with, who was a light force who were closing with and destroying the enemy, your Marine squads are breaching and clearing floor by floor, room by room. The infantry that comes with the mechanized formation is largely exist to protect the tanks and Bradleys from the enemy's dismounted infantry. So we'd penetrate, dismount our rifle squads. They had to fight in the buildings too, but it was for purpose. So now they're breaching a building, clearing up to a you know one floor below the top floor of the building, getting eyes on, getting snipers in place, getting FOs in place, and protect the enemy dismounted infantry from maneuvering against your armor formation because tanks are vulnerable in an urban area if the enemy can get close and they've got all kinds of keyhole shots and we lost six tanks in the fight a couple ran over mines but the most of them were volley fire of rpgs didn't catastrophic kill the tanks didn't hurt the soldiers in them but penetrated gun troops blew off track blew vision blocks into the turret things like that so uh but it was definitely a combined arms fight. 
Yes, sir. The battle I was thinking about, the one I probably use as my example, is just the Battle of Marari in the Philippines in 2017. They just didn't have the mobile protected firepower, so it was a different kind of fight. Yeah. If I was going to do it again, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you want all the capabilities, right? I mean, you, you got to have the ability to rapidly penetrate, which takes speed, protection, firepower, survivability. You know, there were IEDs in Fallujah, but not to the extent I think we would see if, if somebody was defending against the U.S. attack in an urban area right now, for example, you know, there weren't swarm UAVs. There were, so there are going to be other new challenges, but you want everything. You want tanks that can penetrate. If you want tanks, you got to have infantry to protect them. If you want infantry to protect them, you got to have infantry fighting vehicles to position your rifle squads, you know, kind of a mix between a lot of firepower, a lot of mobility, a lot of protection, not as much as a tank, but also can put a rifle squad on the ground. Your rifle squad's got to be lethal. They got to be well-trained. They got to know how to fight, execute battle drills, but you need great intel. You can't do anything without fires. A lot of interesting application of fires when you talk about an urban area, right? Because you got rules of engagement. You got the law of armed conflict. The United States military is a values-based organization, right? So if you violate the law of armed conflict to win, then you, you know that's not how we fight. We're not going to do that. So you got to have a lot of fires and you got to be artful in the employment of them. The medical and logistic challenges, which are a challenge in any fight, are like 10x in terms of complexity when you start fighting in an urban area. So there's a lot of challenges associated with it. The fires part, I really wanted to ask you about because some of my most favorite quotes of yours about the battle pertain to fires. Like you said, we have a Modern War Institute podcast with your Ford support officer, Captain Tyler at the time. He talked about the shaping operations that were done prior to your advance and as you're maneuvering and some of the very different things that he was exposed to. But I don't know if you could talk to some of those joint fires that you had at your availability, everything from AC-130 to UAVs. Some people might point to as one of the first times US UAVs heavily used for, in support of calling for fire for this operation. Yeah. Well, like I said, we were one battalion in one RCT in a division. So the fires fight was very centralized in terms of the shaping operations. It was done at division and, and uh, RCT level. But yeah, the, so because the enemy was doing things like building fighting positions, digging in, putting IDs out, that created the conditions within the laws of armed conflict and the ROE to do shaping ops with fires, right? I mean, you can't just blow up a building, but if the enemy builds a fighting position and there's somebody in it, then that's a legitimate target. So the ability to shape that fight, and then because it was, you know, at least for a period of time, it was the biggest thing going on in Iraq, which was the biggest thing going on for the United States military. I'm, you know, as a battalion, I had priority of fires from an entire AC-130, for example, to set the conditions for that penetration the first night. So it was interesting. It's a good problem to have, but there was so much fires capacity, the ability to deconflict it was the challenge that we had. You know, so as an army unit, we had to, and we've made tons of progress on this with joint interoperability over the last you know decade and a half. But at the time, Captain Tyler and his crew, the JTACs were great at talking to the Air Force, and they were pretty good at talking to Navy aircraft, but the Army FOs had to rapidly learn how to effectively enter into and get targets prosecuted through the Marine systems. And also, the other way around, 
the 120 mortars that we had on the fight were the killer on the battlefield. And the Marines have a lot of mortars. They have mid-echelon. At the time, they didn't have 120s. You know, and just for some people, you know, the, the challenge with shooting artillery into a city is gun target line, right? There's some physics and math involved. The advantage you get with mortars is you can go high angle. You can come right down on the top of a building or in between two buildings. So the Marines over the course of the battle became very good at shooting, but they had to figure out how to get fire missions into the 120 mortars and employ them also. Yes, sir. So I'll go ahead and read you my favorite quote just because it, it really motivates me. In your one of your post-battle interviews, you said, you can't win anything without infantrymen on the ground physically taking it. But the easiest, most effective, and least casually producing on friendly forces way to fight an enemy, even in urban environments, is with fires. Yeah, I'll stand by that. I've said some other stuff that was probably younger day in my life. But um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I grew up as an infantryman. I like to think of myself as a combined arms maneuver officer more than just a one branch guy. But um, yeah, those things aren't mutually exclusive, right? I mean, you know, everybody in the army ultimately exists to put a rifle squad in a position of advantage to close with and destroy the enemy. Nobody wants to do that, but if called on, and I think the history of war is kind of supports the idea that at the end of the day, somebody's going to have to do the close in tough fight and close that last 500 meters, that last hundred yards, you know, in a contest of wills between humans, sometimes people got to get killed at the end of it. But at the same time, any good infantry officer, any good maneuver guy is going to exhaust every resource at his or her disposal before they commit men and women to close in, you know, fighting. So yeah, my first solution to every problem is long before I decided to commit infantry or even armor forces is, is can I get the intel read and employ fires to destroy the enemy at distance as opposed to doing it at a much greater cost? Yes, sir. And I really appreciate the 120 as an old infantry mortarman one of my enlisted days, but also knowing within, like you said, in a dense urban terrain like this, especially even if it's a different environment than the Fallujah, you're going to have tall buildings that obstruct fires and the responsiveness of your organic mortars, or if they're not organic, is huge in an urban fight. Yeah. So the key for younger folks coming up, understanding our profession and understanding how to fight, you got a responsibility. If you're going to command a formation in combat, you got a responsibility to be knowledgeable and proficient and expert level at a lot of things, right? So you got to, you know, maneuver commanders have to understand the intel war fighting function. They have to know logistics. They have to be extremely competent at the employment of fires. I mean, and you have a moral responsibility to do that in an ethical way. When we talk about leadership and command in combat and the weight and responsibility that comes with that and how dedicated and committed you need to be and how hard you have to aspire to be competent and why being a high character individual as a leader matters, I think you could find all those lessons, you know, not just in two sevens fight, but in the Battle of Fallujah. Yes, sir. I mean, the complexity, all warfighting is complex, but the complexity of this battle, hopefully people have listened to this so far, can see. I also found it interesting that the 1st Cavalry Division, 4th Aviation Brigade commander, you know, moving troops around, doing the aerial auto cordon, attack missions, lift missions, was then Colonel James McConville. <laughs> yeah, we had a great team, uh, you know, like everybody did. But I mean, the, you know, we had a great team. We trained together. I mentioned earlier, I mean, every every fire system you could ever want was there for you 
but there was one night in particular we were in a really really bad situation and Coley Tyler and my guys were working through deconflicting fires trying to trying to clear we were taking fire from a protected target so i had an infantry formation pinned down taking fire from what was on the no strike list in terms of all the fire systems. So I was having trouble working through that and got a check-in from a air weapons team of Apaches from the first cav, dropped to my net, listened, said they could solve the problem and took a couple shots that absolutely saved a whole bunch of soldiers and let us get back on the attack and finish the, the mission we were on that night. So yeah. One of the pilots of one of those Apaches happens to be our current chief of staff of the Army. So his combat credibility is unquestioned. I'm an eyewitness to that. Yes, sir. So, sir, I think my last question, you almost already answered it. And, you know, I'm a former believer, especially as one of your former company commanders, about that requirement, that self-development and understanding the war fighting functions. But, you know, if there was a brigade combat team that was training for an attack like Fallujah, what are the recommendations you'd have for a commander or staff doing the planning and execution of a mission like that? This will be unsatisfying, probably, but uh, I believe that urban fighting, John, is a condition of a battlefield. You know, just like COVID is a current condition, it doesn't mean that standards change and it doesn't mean you don't accomplish your mission. So what I tell people is the best thing you can do is have fit, disciplined, cohesive teams, good small unit formations that are well-led, that can execute battle drills, and that are absolutely lethal in terms of employing their weapon systems. That's your best bet. Now, there's some unique, if you're going to apply that in the desert, jungle, urban area, there are some unique things you have to adjust for that. But the most important advice I would give anybody is that fit, discipline, cohesive soldiers, small unit teams that are very, very good at battle drills, converging fires, indirect, direct fires, the ability to shoot, move, communicate, and survive on the battlefield. Make sure they're incredibly well-led, both on the officer and NCO side at platoon and then company troop battery level. And I think that's going to carry the day in any fight. And if you can't do that, then you're in a bad place on any modern battlefield. That's why people, you know, soldiers, leaders, commanders, and the fact that we train with the passion and seriousness that we do, I think I think those are the real asymmetric advantages we have as an army today. Yes, sir. Well, sir, I really appreciate your time. And I think there are some very important lessons in the Second Battle of Fallujah that can support anybody's leader development program or self-study. Or for me, it helps me a lot just as my continue my own development in urban warfare or urban operations in general. Thanks a lot, sir. Yeah. Hey, thanks, John. And just one last thing is just, I just ask everybody to remember that we paid, we, the United States Army and Marine paid a high price for, albeit a significant victory, but it, it came at a cost in human life, Marines and soldiers. And I just ask everybody to keep them all in their thoughts and prayers. And I'll always remember that. Yes, sir. Thanks, sir. Hey, thanks, John. I appreciate it. It's good talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts. 
as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.